Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to church. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Daniel chapter 2. Uh, we have come to the longest chapter in the book of Daniel, and so we've got to move fast today. Uh, it's a great chapter. We're going to be talking about Jesus coming back, and I'd really like to finish before he does. So uh, please turn to Daniel chapter 2, and if you're just joining us, uh, let me catch you up. Um, so the book of Daniel contains um, really the stories of Daniel and his friends in the uh, nation of Babylon uh, for the first six chapters, and then the last six chapters are apocalyptic visions about the end of times, which we'll uh, eventually talk about. And um, Daniel and his friends, they grew up in this culture uh, that was really shaped around knowing and loving and walking with the God of the Bible. Uh, and so this is the world they grew up in where everything encouraged them to live out their faith um, until one day in 605 BC, uh, the Babylonians came in and they destroyed everything. Uh, they literally tore apart God's temple to say, uh, your God is defeated, your God is done, your God is old news. And, and they carried Daniel and his friends uh, away into exile in the city of Babylon, which would have been hell on earth for these guys. Uh, when they get to Babylon, they are made eunuchs, which if you don't know what that means, look it up, careful with your Google search, but their future is literally crushed at this point. Uh, they're named after demon gods. Uh, they're put in a re-education program uh, where everything they've ever been taught is good, beautiful, and true is all of the sudden challenged and attacked and critiqued and looked down upon. Um, and really, to try to get them to accept all of this, they're given food from the king's table. And, and that is the point where Daniel and his friends draw their line. Um, now, it's not the place I draw my line. Um, I'd probably draw my line on the other side of the meat and the wine, uh, but these guys, they believe that their God was alive, though his temple was destroyed. They believe that God had sent them into Babylon for a purpose, to shine his light and his love in this very dark place. And um, as they went vegan for Jesus, that's just what we saw happen last week. Uh, God showed up and worked a miracle where these guys not only packed on the pounds physically and looked better than everyone around them, but they were given uh, social gifts of favor in their relationships. They're given spiritual gifts of wisdom and knowledge and insight to where they begin to rise to the top of their class in this great city of Babylon. And all of a sudden, at the end of Daniel chapter 1, it looks like maybe this whole shining in Babylon thing is going to work out. That's Daniel chapter 1. Now we come to Daniel chapter 2 where there's a problem. Uh, let's jump in and look right at it. Daniel chapter 2. Uh, starting in verse 1, we read this. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So here's what we know from this point in history. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, at this point in his reign, he's starting to face some fierce resistance to his expansionistic policies. Uh, if you were here week one, we talked about how Nebuchadnezzar um, was really bent on Babylon becoming the dominant power in the region. And so he's tearing through the regions, expanding uh, the reach of the Babylonian empire. And, and maybe as you can imagine, the other nations in the region don't love this. And so as he is tearing through the region and tearing through places like Jerusalem and Judah Falls and one nation after, man, Assyria Falls, the other nations in the region begin to go, um, this guy's going to be a problem. 
It's kind of like 1930s Europe where they're looking around, they're seeing borders are moving, nations are falling. They're going, this guy's going to be a problem. And so alliances are formed to resist the Babylonian expansion. And it's at that point that Daniel tells us that Daniel chapter 2 takes place. In the midst of all this resistance Nebuchadnezzar's facing, he, he can't sleep at night. He, he lies awake going, is my empire over? Have I peaked at this young age? Is this the end of it? And it's uh, during these sleepless nights that he has a dream that really freaks him out. Verse 2. So then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, uh, this is a group we're going to see again and again and again in the book of Daniel. This is kind of like uh, his uh, chief staff team. That, these are the, the head wise men. Chaldeans is another word for Babylonians. So, so these are uh, the executive staff he calls together. And he summons them to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Uh, You see, in Babylon, uh, in these days, the wise men had this book that would explain what each element of a dream would mean. And so... um, For example, if you saw a bird, that meant this. If you saw a goat, that meant this. If you showed up before the royal court in nothing but your birthday suit, that meant this. And so what would happen is you would tell your dream, and they would just look up the different elements in their book, and they would say, well, this means that, this means that, and boom, there's your dream interpretation. Um, It was kind of like the tarot cards of the ancient world, where they would always have to give their interpretations and generalized terms that in some sense could always be true, right? And so they would say things like, um, a great opportunity is just around the corner. And and so this is how it went. The kings would tell them the dreams, they look it up in the book, they assign the symbols and go, boom, here's what it means. Um, But Nebuchadnezzar, uh, for all of his evil, he's a pretty smart dude. Uh, he starts to suspect that this is all a little too general. He starts to suspect, frankly, that this is all a bunch of BS. And so look what he says to them in verse 5. He says, I have a dream. They're like, tell us the dream. And he says in verse 5, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid to ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, well, then you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream. And we'll look it up in the book. We'll show him the interpretation. Verse 8. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you guys are full of it. I'm kidding. That's not in the text. He says, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that this word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words from me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and then I'll know that you can interpret it. Pretty smart, Nebuchadnezzar. Pretty, pretty smart. Verse 10. The Chaldeans, again, that's another name for Babylonians. This is his chief staff council. Uh, They answer him, and they said, 
There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. This thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. And so these guys, they hear what the king's saying, and they're like, this is impossible, which to be fair to them, it is. He's asking them to read his mind, and then not only read his mind, but then make sense of it, which doesn't even make sense to him. Some of you, you're like, I feel these guys. I've been in that situation. Um, Here's what I'd say to you. If you've been in that situation where someone expects you to read their mind and then interpret it to them, I I would hope that you responded better than these guys. Uh, Because what these guys do is they play the whole you're crazy card, which this one's for free. It's not a sermon on marriage table. I'll just tell you, the you're crazy card never works. They they go, Nebi, we're on team Nebuchadnezzar, but this is crazy. No king has ever asked this sort of thing. It's a rookie mistake, I know. Verse 12, you probably know what's coming. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, you're right, I'm out of my mind. No, that's never how these things go. Verse 12, uh, because of this, The king was angry and very furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So so Nebuchadnezzar's problem, the anxiety he has over his empire, this dream that's freaked him out, this impossible situation that he can't understand, his problem now becomes the problem of everyone around him. Uh, This is the kind of guy Nebuchadnezzar was, that when he had stress, rather than take it to God, he would just pass it on to the people around him. And and so now all of a sudden, Daniel chapter 1, everything's looking great. Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a bad dream and wakes up and wants to kill everybody. All the wise men, which if you remember from last week, that includes Daniel and his friends. Um, Now, here's what I would say about problems in impossible situations. Um... Impossible situations like this can be a great place to shine in Babylon. Um, Here's what I mean by that. Um, For as much as we live in a culture that, kind of like Babylon, thinks that our God is old news and irrelevant and not important, um, everyone comes to a moment in their life where this illusion that we've built that we can live a life apart from God and our own strength with our own resources, everyone eventually hits a point where life catches up with you and that illusion comes crumbling to the ground. Um, I know that's how I got saved. I know that's how a lot of you got saved. That Everybody eventually hits this moment where we can pretend all we want that we're secular and we don't believe in myths like God, but everyone rubs up eventually in that moment in life where you have to reach for something greater, where nothing in your life makes sense. You come to the end of your resources like this guy here. And what I will say about that is that is the point where the light of the gospel tends to shine the brightest. And see, I know some of you have people in your life that you love desperately. And you so, you want them to meet Jesus or to come back to Jesus. Like, you you want this, but some days it looks hopeless. Because as you look at their life, as you listen to them, it seems like they increasingly find God irrelevant. And, And what I would say to that is, hang in there. Keep being present with them. Keep loving them. Uh, Keep asking good questions like we'll see Daniel do in this text about their life because everyone without exception will hit that moment where life makes the illusion that we could do life apart from God 
comes crashing into that. And everything comes crashing down. And the question is, in that moment, will you be prepared to share the hope of the gospel with them when it happens? Um, how do you get prepared? But that's what this story is about. So let's, let's keep reading. Because this isn't just abstract, this isn't just Nebuchadnezzar's problem. Remember, his problem now becomes the problem of all the wise men in Babylon, including Daniel, verse 13. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is this decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Pretty bold. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house, and he made known the matter to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Um. See, Nebuchadnezzar, he believes that he's alone in the universe. I mean, in Babylon, they believed in gods, but as we heard in the text, they just think the gods don't get involved. And so there's not a big difference between being agnostic and atheist. If you think God doesn't care, it doesn't matter if he's out there. That's kind of where Nebuchadnezzar is. He believes in all these different gods, but he doesn't think that they're going to get involved in his life. And so Nebuchadnezzar is much like a modern secular person. He thinks functionally he's on his own. The universe is a closed loop, and it's up to me, myself, and I to solve these problems in my empire. But, but Daniel doesn't believe that myth. Daniel knows that there is a God who is both powerful enough to help us, like the Babylonian gods theoretically were, but he's also loving enough to get involved, loving enough to care about what happens on the earth. The way he says it in verse 28 is there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. I would submit to you that that verse is the heart of the book of Daniel. Because again, in Babylon, they believed that there were gods out there that were far away in heaven. They just didn't think the gods cared enough to get involved. And Daniel's like, no way. I know him. I know that he's even more powerful than your gods, but I also know that he cares enough to get involved. So much of the word he has written to us says, come to me, cast your burdens on me, and I'll care for you. I'll be a refuge for you. And so while Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's alone, Daniel clings to his faith that says God is not only powerful, but he's involved. And that belief drives him to run to God in prayer in his time of need. And I'll, I'll be really honest with you. This is the point in the story um, where I felt really convicted this week. Um, because while my, if you ask me to write out my theology, I'm going to wholeheartedly agree with verse 28, that there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries on earth. His name is Jesus. He's awesome. But more often than not, I live practically like the Babylonians. Um, here, here's what that looks like. Uh, 
I, I can start my day and there's a lot going on and so I can make my to-do list of all the things that need to get done and come up with my plan for how I'm going to achieve all the things that are so important before me. And I can work, work, and work. And if I'm having a really good day, I can stop and pray and ask God to bless all of the plans that I have to make this world a better place. And, and, and that's on the good day, just real talk that I have time to do that. But, but I can get so busy, caught up in my plans and my work, that at the end of the day, I'm functionally no different than these guys that are like, yeah, God's out there. This is up to us. And as I was reading verse 28 this week, the Holy Spirit just opened up. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Do you live like that's true? Because if you believe that, then prayer will not be something you sprinkle on at the end. Prayer will be your first instinct. Prayer is something that you won't do because you were told to by the pastor. No external sense of conviction. If there will be an internal sense of if he's out there, why am I going to waste time with my pea brain when I could come to him and tap into his power in my situation? That is what Daniel does here. And, and, and look, I don't want you to leave today going, oh, I need to pray more. Like how many times have you had that sermon? What I just want to live before you is the question I've been thinking about all week of how much am I leaving on the table in my relationship with God because I'm content to live like a Babylonian Monday to Friday? How much more is there that he has for me that I'm not even experiencing because though I believe it, I live like this? Um, there's a pastor about 100 years ago named P.T. Forsythe. Um, he's in a lot of ways credited with helping uh, Europe survive the horrors of World War II. Uh, he's written a great book on prayer where he says this. He says, not to pray, or, or I would add praying as an afterthought, is not to discern the things that really matter and the powers that really rule. I don't know about you, but... I was reading that this week, and I go, so often that describes my life. That I think I have pretty good theology about the power that rules, but at a functional day-in and day-out level, I live very disconnected from who is the real power to change that relationship I'm working on, to see breakthrough in that situation that I've tried everything to figure it out, and to see that person I care so much about come alive to Jesus. So often I can fail to perceive the powers that really rule. And I'm not saying it makes you not a Christian if you do that. I, what I'm trying to say, what the Holy Spirit's been saying to me is, you're missing out. And, and one of the ways in our text I think that you can discern how much are you leaving on the table with God is how well are you sleeping at night. Because what's fascinating is Nebuchadnezzar, he's worried, he's living a life in his own strength, he cannot sleep. Daniel, he prays, and then he does the one thing Nebuchadnezzar can't. He sleeps. This is something scripture says. I'm, I'm not going to look it up. It, it's in the Psalms. I forget the number. Google it. You'll find it. It says that God gives to his beloved the gift of sleep. Now, I'm not saying there can't be other dynamics at play. Like, man, there might be a physical thing that you need to get worked out. There might be a chemical thing. Like, there is all sorts of physical realities, too, that can affect our sleep. But I'm telling you, if you're tending to all that and you still can't sleep at night, it might be a sign that you're leaving something on the table, that you're carrying a weight that only belongs to God and it's why you can't sleep at night. Daniel comes to God in prayer, and then he takes a nap. And while he is sleeping, guys, this is the Christian life right here. While he is sleeping, God does great work. 
He reveals the answer to Daniel in a vision, in dreams at night. Verse 19, I'll read it to you. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give you praise and thanks for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we have asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and he said to him, Stop it! Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. So Arioch's day is going to go pretty different than he thought. Verse 25. Then Arioch brought Daniel in before the king in haste, and he said, Thus I have found, which I'm like, really? Did you find Arioch? But let's let him have his day. I have found amongst the exiles from Judah a man who is willing to make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery the king has asked. At this moment, I imagine Arioch said, "Uh Uh-oh, shouldn't have taken credit for this guy. He says, No human can do what you're asking. No. Verse 28, But... The gospel, the good news, it always has that word but in there. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. And he's going to go on to tell him the vision. But before we do that, I want you to see the result of this whole thing. I want you to see the result that occurs as a result of Daniel being like, yeah, no, that's impossible. But God, God's in heaven. He's revealed it. He gives the dream and the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. And skip down to verse 46 because I just want you to see his reaction. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and he paid homage to Daniel. And he commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. This is the teenage kid slave that he pulled out of Jerusalem. That he says, your God is nothing. Your name means nothing. Your worldview's dumb. He bows on the ground and says, let's worship this guy. Verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and the revealer of mercies. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole providence of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the providence of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Um, What a turn a story can take. Daniel goes from being hunted down to being killed to being worshipped 
by this pagan king. For this pagan king who mocked his religion going, sorry, I was wrong, you were right, your God legit, my God's not legit. Like this story takes a huge turn. And, the, and, and again, I say that's the gospel. There's always this but, there's always this turn. This is what God did in Daniel's day, this is what he always does. That in Babylon, in the heart of darkness, where you have this crazy, tyrannical king wanting to go around and kill everybody because he had a bad dream, a light begins to shine of a better way. Of a hope that is beyond this world. Of the light of heaven that is willing to reach down to us. And that light not only causes all of the wise men of Babylon to be saved, but you want to talk about shining in Babylon? How about saving an entire population that was marked for extinction? That light not only causes all of the wise men of Babylon to be saved, but it causes this pagan king who mocked Daniel's God to bow and worship and to confess that Daniel's God is the God of gods, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And, and now look, um, if you've ever read the book of Daniel, you know that our boy Nebuchadnezzar, he's on a journey, I would call it, where he will uh, confess the right things here. Uh, and then we're going to go like a chapter later, he's going to get a little narcissistic again and lose his mind and want to throw people in the furnace because they won't bow and worship to him. He's a little forgetful, this guy Nebuchadnezzar. But he is on a journey of his faith. This is maybe the first and distinct moment where he has had an undeniable encounter with the living God. And those encounters begin to pile up and pile up to where he will say even greater things and seem like truer, more genuine things about God. The point is, he's on a journey. I wouldn't call this his conversion just yet, but he has had an encounter with the living God that is undeniable. And that's what's meant to happen is God's people look to him, as we said last week, as God's people get their eyes off of the culture and up onto him in exile. This is what's meant to happen as God's people look to him in Babylon. That the people you think they'll never, ever believe in God, the people that will never, ever respect our faith, have an undeniable encounter that leads to a but in their life. And, and look, there, there are some who will say that, well, that's how God did it back in the days of the Bible, but he doesn't do that anymore. Uh, and I don't know if you've heard that. Um, what I will just tell you is there's nothing in the Bible that says that God has stopped giving visions and dreams to his people. Uh, in fact, what the scriptures actually say in Acts chapter 2 is we live in the new covenant, the age where the spirit is unleashed. And so, yeah, your old men's are going to dream dreams. Your young uh, women, they're, they're going to have visions. Like this is for all people who call Jesus Lord, that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. That he loves to tell us things that we couldn't know in and of ourselves. So that we could live a life that shines the light and the power of his kingdom in a darkness that can't be explained by us. Let me give you just one example. Um, there's so many places I could go, but um, I'm reading in 1 Corinthians right now in my Bible reading, so that's what you get today, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I was reading this this week, and I'm like, hey, this, this lines up. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, it is living by God's power. 
Is that how you think about your life? Do you think about your life in human terms, but you believe in the right God so you go to heaven at the end? Or do you think of your life in supernatural terms, that my life, it's not just a bunch of God talk, that there's a power at work in my life that's bringing heaven down into this broken world. Not because I'm awesome, Daniel's going to stretch that, stress that in the story, but because God's awesome and that he would be so merciful to make his power manifest in my life. See, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians here is that, man, if your Christian life is all a bunch of talk, you're leaving a lot on the table. Because there's a lot about Jesus to talk about, but there's real power in the cross. There's real power in his spirit at work in us. And if you're leaving that on the table, then you are missing the opportunity to shine in Babylon. Uh, Let me give you a couple other examples. Uh, James, um, the half-brother of Jesus who wrote uh, the New Testament letter called James, he says in chapter 5, he says the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Now some of you are like, gotcha, I'm not righteous, I'm a sinner. No, I've got you. In Christ you are righteous, your sins have been paid for, you stand with the righteousness of Christ, and so the prayers of a Christian are powerful and effective. And he goes on to give the example of Elijah, which if you don't know the story of Elijah, uh, Elijah has this uh, showdown with um, uh, a bunch of pagan priests who believe in a god called Baal, who's a lot like the gods of uh, later Babylon. And, And what Elijah does is he says, well, let's do a little test. We each pray to our God, and the God who causes fire to come down from heaven, he's the real God. And what James says in James chapter 5 is Elijah was a man just like you and me. He was just a human. But he prayed and the power of God was unleashed in this world. This is New Testament Christianity, not just in the days of Daniel. This is the days in which we live. If anything, more because the Spirit is poured out on all believers. That we are meant to walk in a type of power where our Christian lives would be described not as uh, a bunch of things that we abstractly believe, but it would be seen primarily in a power working through us. Um, I'll give you one more example. First uh, Corinthians 14. Uh, we spent our whole summer in 1 Corinthians 13 last year, which I would just give that as another example that um, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about the power to love genuinely from the heart. Like, good grief, if we could do that in this day, would that not be gospel power that is undeniable? 1 Corinthians 13, but now 1 Corinthians 14, because uh, this is what's in my notes and <laughs> this is what stood out this week. Um, 1 Corinthians 14, 25, um, Paul is talking about when the church gathers, And he's talking about spiritual gifts, these gifts that God has given us, like Daniel and his friends, to make his power known in the world, to um, build believers up, to make much of the gospel in the world. And what he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 25 is um, that if, if, if an unbeliever comes into the gathering of the church and you are prophesying, if you are walking in this gift that the Holy Spirit gave you, verse 25, he says, well, then the secrets of his heart, talking about the unbeliever, will be disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like our boy Nettie? See, this isn't what God did once in Babylon. This is what God always does. That she, he shines his light 
into the darkness, that he shines his love into our hearts. And as we receive that mercy like Daniel, it begins to radiate through us to the world around us. This is what you will see page after page in the New Testament. People walking with the living God, living a life that can't be explained based on who they are. But there's a power at work within them that is undeniable. And it makes a dent on the world around them. And so um, I guess I just want to urge you to try it. Maybe you're like, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, but that's not been my experience. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Try it out this week. Pray specifically. Pray a big, almost said bigly. Pray specifically, pray big. Pray expectantly like Daniel who goes to the king and he's like, hey, I'll, I'll get you an answer. Just give me some time to pray. I'll be right back. And what I will say is um, God doesn't always answer our prayers immediately like he does for Daniel. Uh, this is a very urgent situation here. Um, but here's what I can tell you. When you come to God like Daniel, you will always find him there. And that's the point. See, this isn't some parlor trick like the magicians in Babylon believed that, oh, if we could just pull the right levers, then we'll have power to solve the problems in our life. And that's a very Babylonian way of thinking. See, in the Christian way of thinking, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, that he knows what we need, that he is the answer to all of our problems. And in prayer, through Christ, through his blood shed for us, we are invited to come as beloved children into the presence of the God in heaven. To know him, to love him, to have him be present in our life. And sometimes that will look like, here's the answer. I just showed you all these examples in the New Testament where if you've never experienced that, I would say maybe you're leaving something on the table. But I don't want you to go to the opposite extreme where you have a prosperity gospel and you're like, I name it, I claim it. By the power of Christ, make this traffic disappear. I mean, it could happen if God wants it to. Like, like legit, maybe if everyone in the city of Concord was going to die, like all these wise men, he would part the Red Sea and like Jack Bauer, you could get to the bomb and disarm it on time. I don't doubt God would do that. But I wonder if he wants to meet you in your commute in a deeper way. So I, I, I want to encourage us, don't leave stuff on the table, but don't go prosperity gospel, because then you leave the living Jesus on the table, and you try to make God into a genie. We want to go right down the middle with Daniel to say, there's a God in heaven, he cares about me, and so I'm going to draw near to him, knowing that this isn't about some parlor trick, this is about knowing the God of heaven. And when you know the God of heaven, the consistent testimony of Daniel and the New Testament Christians is that his power will be at work in your life in a way that's undeniable. He will give you knowledge that you couldn't otherwise have. He will give you power to transform sin in your life that you've been stuck in. He will give you power to love people in a way that no one else can love because this is what it's like to walk in a relationship with the God of heaven. So I want to encourage you this week, try it out. Pray specifically, expectantly, and see how he meets you in that place. Because there's a God in heaven, 
and he loves to meet us. Where our power reaches its limits, that's where he really gets started. Now, you might be like, that, that sounds really great for a guy like Daniel who is going vegan for Jesus, but I found this week I don't even have that much self-control. Uh, that sounds really great for people in the Bible, but what about me? Well, I would submit to you that's what the heart of the vision is about. That this isn't just for some super Christians like Daniel, that this is what Jesus has come to do in the world for everyone who would call on his name. And so look with me now, finally at the vision in Daniel chapter 2. This dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and its interpretation. Let's go, verse 28. So he says, Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king... As you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom I have more than all of the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and its thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces." Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over the whole earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks the pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so that they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as the iron does not mix with clay. Now, I can see right now that some of you are ready to get out your charts. You're like, okay, what nations are these? There's not a lot of debate about the first three, but what about this iron and the clay, and who's that? Who's the big toe? I, I, I can see that you're ready to get out the charts, and what I would say to you is come back for the second half of the book of Daniel. 
Because Daniel 7 to 12 is all filled with apocalyptic visions of the future like these. This very vision is going to be repeated in different terms in Daniel chapter 7. So if you've got the charts, God bless you. Come back for Daniel 7 and the rest of the book of Daniel because we're going to get into it. Because God is telling them the future here, and there's something encouraging about knowing I might not know the future, but I know the God who knows the future, and he's got me. Come back for that message. Um, what I want to do for today is I simply want to show us the main point of Daniel 2, which we're still in the narratives in Daniel here. It really seems like the thrust in Daniel 2 is about this God in heaven who reveals mysteries to man. And so I would submit to you at this point, the point of this text is not which kingdoms are which part of the statue. The point is what happens to the statue. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made this known to the king, what shall be after this? This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So just in case at the end, Nebuchadnezzar was like, was that the tacos last night? He's like, no, this dream is certain, the interpretation is sure, this is going to happen. What he tells them, in essence, is so this, this statue, this image, uh, this icon uh, that you saw, it, it's really representing a series of successive empires that's going to rule over the whole earth. And so you've got the top Babylon, you've got Medo-Persia, you've got Greece, you've got... I, I just said I wasn't going to do this. <laughs> Come back for Daniel 7. But you've got this succession of empires that will rule over the earth. And, and what we're seeing in this vision is that one day, God is going to send a rock to crush all of it. And when he sends that rock, it's going to crush into pieces these human empires, and it's going to set up a kingdom that, unlike all of these great and mighty empires of history that rule for a little while and then get defeated and pass away, this kingdom that's coming, it will never be defeated. It will never pass away. It will grow until it fills and renews the whole earth. Now, here's why that's good news. Some of you are like, that sounds very violent. Here's why this is good news. Um, because all of the human empires of this world are ultimately like Babylon at the end of the day. Um, like, like, like I was kind of starting to say earlier, we know who the first three empires are here. We maybe even know the fourth. And we know from history, for example, that the, the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and especially the Romans had a level of brutality that would make the Babylonians blush. It would make a guy like Nebuchadnezzar go, why didn't I think to torment people that efficiently? You guys are brilliant. It's like each of these empires gets darker and darker and worse and worse as the empires go on. And, and that's kind of the point. The point is, if we have any hope in this world of living in a place where people don't just want to kill us on a whim, 
if we would have any hope of living in a world where people don't call us crazy and mock everything we believe and tear us down, if we have any hope of living in a society that sees life as a gift instead of crushing the ability to create life like they did in Babylon, if we have any hope of living in a world of peace and harmony and love and justice, well then these worldly empires are going to have to come to an end. Because Babylon might be different from Medo-Persia, from Greece, from Rome, but what they all have in common at the end of the day is they oppress human flourishing. They push people down under their boot to make much of their power. And so if we have any hope of life and freedom and flourishing in this world, it is someone coming from outside of this world, a greater power to put down those who would oppress us and lift us from the ashes. And that's what this vision says is going to happen. And it's not just this vision. This is literally the hope of the whole Bible. The last book of the Bible ends with Jesus coming back to earth and defeating, catch this, Babylon. What's crazy about that is the book of Revelation is written hundreds of years after Babylon is dead and gone. Here is the point, and I'll just make it quickly. This is going to make your mind hurt. Just hang on to it. According to the authors of the Bible, Babylon is not just a geopolitical nation that existed at some point in history. Babylon represents a spirit that is at work in every age. So in the book of Genesis, when they talk about the Tower of Babel and how evil and unjust that place was, they could say, hey, that is Babylon. In the last book of the Bible, when they talk about the nation of Rome that killed the Lord, that oppressed his people, that was tearing people limb from limb, they could say that's Babylon. The idea in the Bible is that Babylon, it is a real political nation in history that we've been looking at. It also becomes a metaphor, a way of speaking about a spirit that has been at work in this world Ever since the serpent said to our first parents, God is holding out on you. His kingdom is not the right way. You need to form your own kingdom and build your own empire on this earth. And I'll just say this for the wise men of Babylon. I think at one level they had the right instinct. I think at one level they understood that the spirit of Babylon, it leads to such darkness. I, these guys are wise. They're learned. And so they know what's going on in the culture. They know the way the vulnerable were being oppressed in the city of Babylon. that was supposed to be this great wonder of the ancient world. But if you actually entered this city, you would see how dark it was unless you had all this social privilege and power. These wise men knew that our city is a dark place. That the spirit of Babylon, no matter what nation it's present in, it always leads to this. Trying to build our lives on human wisdom, on human understanding, on human terms apart from God. That is the essence of the spirit of Babylon. And what I think these wise men knew is that it leads to incredible darkness. It leads to people having a bad dream and wanting to kill other people. And so these guys were like, yeah, if the gods are out there, they don't want to get involved down here because this earth is messy. We kill each other. We use, we use, abuse one another. This is not, if there is a God, this is not the kind of place he hangs out. I think the Babylonians actually had that right when they said, yeah, only the gods know, but they don't exactly want to hang out down here with us humans. They got the bustedness of the world right. What I think they missed was the gospel. 
that God, and this is the gospel, that God loves us. He doesn't want to destroy us along with Babylon. He wants to rescue us from the spirit of Babylon. And so before he comes to crush the evil empires of this world and to put an end to evil and injustice once and for all, he comes first in humility to serve, to sacrifice his life for us. And on the cross, the rock that God sent into the world is himself crushed under the weight of our sin and our sorrow and all the darkness that you and I bring into the world. We might not serve a great kingdom or empire in the world. Maybe we just serve the independent kingdom of self. And Jesus comes into the world to save us from that. He comes to save us from our sin on the cross. What the scripture tells us is he deals with our sin, our shame. He crushes Satan himself, the power that is at work behind the spirit of Babylon. And he takes our sin and our shame to the grave. And he leaves it there so that when he rises again, he says, that sin has been crushed. It is in the grave, and the grave is no more. New life is coming out the other side. And when he raises out the other side, here's the crazy thing. The Jesus movement starts off small, almost like a small rock. When Jesus ascends to heaven after defeating Satan's sin and death, you could put all of his followers into a single room. But just like the rock in the vision... The Jesus movement continues to grow to where Rome, the evil empire of his day, is dead and gone. But the church of Jesus Christ continues to grow and continues to fill the earth like a great mountain, like a great hope. And I know that we have our days where it's like that looks like a pretty busted mountain. But it's growing and he's renewing and he's at work. And maybe this is why he's let Babylon fall upon us again. Because he wants to renew us in this place. But here is what we see throughout history. And in this vision is the rock is not done yet. Jesus is alive. He is on the move, but he doesn't leave it at this in-between place. One day, the last book of the Bible tells us Jesus is going to come back and he's going to complete this vision in full. He is going to... uh, fully reunite heaven and earth. He is going to raise you up. He is going to bring healing to your body. He's going to wipe away every tear from your eye. And on that day, you and I will be in a great position within his government to rule and reign and to judge angels for all eternity, just like Daniel is in Babylon at the end of this text. This is the hope. And this is why... This is why we say this is ultimately a book about Jesus. Because if you read that as a rock, apart from understanding how the rock came the first time to be crushed so that we wouldn't be crushed and we could have all of this crushing of the evil empires of the earth become good news for us. This is why we always, always want to come back to Jesus every week. What this vision is saying is no matter how dark the kingdoms of this world can make it look, the rock is coming. This dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. And we live in this privileged moment in history where we stand on the precipice, where the rock has already come once, where Satan is defeated. And so this, this prophecy, it has begun to be fulfilled in our day, that his power 
is at work in the world. It's available to transform our lives, to empower us, to lead us in living a life of power that cannot be denied by those even farthest from God. Do you want that? Does anybody want that? Maybe I'm the only one. But I'm like, I want to live a life of power. I want to live a life where the rock is moving, where new creation is at work in me. And in some sense, you can see this vision, the light of this vision where I go. Does anybody in this room want that for their lives? Yes. Well, then this vision is for you. This chapter of the Bible is for you. If you want to live a life of power where the king of heaven is at work in you, that is why this chapter is in the Bible. Because what we see in Daniel chapter 2 is there's a God in heaven. And he loves to reveal mysteries to us. Not because we're awesome or smart, but because he's merciful, gracious, and kind. And anyone humble enough like Daniel to say, I want it, can get in on this. And so as we begin our week-long response to this message. Um, I just want to encourage you to come to him now. Um, There's a few ways we build out in service that you can do this. There's certainly more, but at a minimum, um, in the next several minutes, you could come to the table in communion. And what we are celebrating in communion is really a tangible expression of this good news, where we are celebrating that whatever sin, whatever darkness is in our life, It's been ultimately crushed on the cross of Christ. That if you trusted in him, that sin is as far from you as the east is from the west. I know it might not feel far from your memory, but Jesus is like, I came into the world to crush that, to remove that, so you could be free of that and live a life of power. And so maybe the first way you need to respond to this message is come forward to the table to confess those things in your life to him that he already knows about, has already crushed, and taste and see through the bread and the cup that he is still for you and that his power meets you where you are weakest. And so maybe you need to confess something to him this morning and receive his grace and feel what the Apostle Paul said, that my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Uh, Maybe the second way you need to respond is through prayer. Maybe you've got an urgent request, something specific that you need to make known to him this morning. Um, What what I would say to you is... um, We see in Daniel, he didn't pray alone. He grabbed his friends. And so we would love the honor of praying with you. If you would fill out a connect card and drop that in an offering box in the back, we'll be praying for you this week. But even better than that, I would say, tell your gospel community this week. Get your Hananiah, Mishael, and uh, the third guy, get, get them together and say, here's how you can be praying for me. Here's, we need to pray together. This is urgent. I can't do this on my own. So maybe you need to respond by making a specific prayer in community with God's people in your life this week. Um, Whatever it is, let me just say this. Do not leave here without dealing with Jesus. Do not leave here without dealing with Jesus. Look, I, I know some of you will think me a fool for saying this, But I believe that this is the power of God to salvation. So I'm just going to say it. God sent a rock from heaven into this world and his name is Jesus. And he came to bring the power of heaven into your life today. And you can have that simply by coming forward and saying, I want that Jesus.
But if you resist him, if you continue to keep him at an arm's length and say, I choose my rebellion over your salvation, if you continue to resist him, you will be crushed along with Babylon. He doesn't want that for you. He came to be crushed so you wouldn't have to. And so I just want to plead with you this morning, do not harden your heart to him. Come to him. You might still have questions, that's fine, but come and deal honestly with him. Tell him the real questions in your life because here's what I will tell you. He is the power that you are looking for. And if you would come to him, even in your questions and say, I want to believe in you, but this issue is out here, I believe you will find his power will meet you directly in that place. I'll I'll end with this because I know some of you are still freaked out about the statue. Like, when is all this going to take place? Is he ever going to finish preaching before this begins to take place? Um, Jesus' disciples had questions about when all this was going to take place. And so when they had questions, like, Jesus, when's all this going to happen? What are the details? Tell us. We're freaked out. We need to know more. Here's what Jesus said to them right before ascending to the book of heaven. Uh, Excuse me, I'm looking for the book of Acts. Here's what he says to them right before ascending to heaven. He said, it's not for you to know the times of the season that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus, we want this power. Forgive us of the ways that we so often live life in our strength and our power. Forgive me of the ways that I live like a functional Babylonian. Thank you for loving us so much that you would come into this world to save us from the spirit of Babylon. And so I pray that you would do that saving work a little more in our hearts this morning. Would you send your Holy Spirit to give us a bigger vision of you? Would you meet us wherever we are this morning with power? Would you help us to experience this year how there is power in the cross and that your spirit is at work within us? Jesus, would you use us to demonstrate your power to this valley in a way that our friends and our neighbors and our family will not be able to deny, but that they might come to praise your name as a result. Do your work among us just like you did amongst Daniel and his friends in their day. In your beautiful name I ask. Amen.